Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah, wa alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. So uh, moving through this uh, complex galaxy of uh, lights that still shine from long ago, from the uh, almost incomprehensible uh, sort of cornucopia of luminaries that uh, has been preserved for us by our historians from the uh, long centuries of the Muslim past. And at every point we've been trying to uh, triangulate to our own situation from the accomplishments of those past great ones. And we've already seen the uh, remarkable, perhaps even uh, baffling diversity of Muslim types. We started off by commenting on the uh, Quranic celebration of difference. Difference in cosmos, difference in humanity. The difference of your tongues and colors. Uh, and also of human types. Every single human being, by the divine decree, has his or her mizaj needed according to a particular a set of spiritual possibilities, uh, and also according to inheritance factors. We certainly believe in inheritance, the uh, uh, genetic DNA shuffling at the moment of conception is part of the divine desire that no two human beings shall be the same. So when we look at paradigms for ourselves and we per uh, peruse the complexity and the grandeur of the Islamic story, which is a story of human beings and their turning towards the divine, we perceive not just one way of apprehending the prophetic excellence, but a huge range of them. And this is what we should expect. And this is important because ours is an age of quite militant homogenization. Modernity pays lip service to the right of people to do their own thing and to be different within the woolly confines of liberal indifferentism. But at the same time, globalization, which is its flip side, tends to turn us into variants of the same sort of thing. Real difference, real eccentrics, real misfits, real oddballs are less easy to come by than once they were. Mass communication, the internet, Hollywood, uh, even the invention of printing have served to homogenize human beings, which is not what the divine purpose is for us. We are to be diverse. And if you read the Sira, you see such an extraordinarily wide um, cast of players. Uh, so many archetypes in a Shakespearean way bodied forth by particular personalities amongst the uh, Sahaba. So uh, the, the monochrome nature of modern humanity is an aspect of this, the, the drabness. And so as we begin today's journey, looking at a somewhat more recent figure, though not as recent as our Muslim cowboy that we looked at last time, William Williamson, we will be considering this, the polychrome nature of pre-modern humanity, the sheer diversity of the world, the ongoing luminous intensity uh, of the natural world, human engagement with other forms of consciousness in ways that nowadays has become perfunctory and hurried. 
more opportunities for leisure we have, uh, the less time we seem to have just to take a deep breath and contemplate the moment. These are all um, usual homilies. It is our modern condition. But uh, in past times, humanity was something very different uh, and probably would have regarded us with horror and pity, not just as hopeless materialistic blasphemers, but as people for whom part of the richness and the intensity and the in-the-momentness of humanity has been lost in favor of a kind of daydreaming. So we have these ideas of what it is to be an admirable human being, a hero, in that kind of Hegelian sense perhaps, somebody absolutely attentive to the unique irreplaceability of the moment. Because nowadays the moment is not from God, has no particular meaning, there's no symbolic interpretation possible, it's just another moment, another random concatenation of atoms in a meaningless universe. We're kind of in a hurry to get on to the next one in case it's more interesting. But in a theistic cosmos, where every moment is full of divine meaning, if only we would stop, take a deep breath and meditate upon it, yeah, they were people who were ibn al-waqt, people who were sons of the moment and were to use the dreadful, borderized, mock Buddhist contemporary category, mindful. Uh, they were in the moment, hadirin. And that led to a certain intensity of personality and a certain intensification of the possibilities of manhood, the possibilities of nobility, the possibilities of criminality, the possibilities of masculinity and femininity. All of these things were, as it were, highly coloured, um, intensified, writ large. So I want to start with an example of this. It's a, a passage that's kind of famous in travel literature. Um, this is um, Edmondo de Amicis's famous book about Constantinople, Istanbul, which he visited when the Ottoman thing was still kind of visible. This is in the time of Sultan Abdul Aziz, so uh, the beginning of the end, but he could still see the old world, the old guys, in splendidly colored clothes and magnificent turbans and the color and splendor and havoc of the East. And then the modernization with the black frock coat and the boring tarbush and the uh, efficient time and money men in the modernized European offices and the decline of the splendor and the extravagance, the cornucopia of the Levant. It's cosmopolitanism replaced by efficiency and moving towards a monoculture. So here's his reminiscence. He's just been to see the Sultan Sultan Abdul Aziz, who is a rather sorry figure, and he's expecting to see this oriental pageant. And instead, it's a very Europeanized kind of thing. He rides out of Dolmabatri Palace, which is this very Europeanized Rococo thing. Uh, and um, the official palace officials are there, and the Sultan is kind of drably dressed, and he's kind of a bit bored. There's a bunch of French tourists there, goggling. Nothing, just another modern spectacle. So he's just reflected on this. And then he says this, and I'll read this in extenso because it, it kind of sums up what we have lost um, and leads us into the remainder of today's uh, reflections. As the reader can see, the spectacle of the Sultan's procession has today become a rather drab affair. 
The sultans of olden times issued forth in great pomp, preceded and followed by swarms of horsemen, slaves, guards, gardeners, eunuchs, and chamberlains, who seemed from a distance, so enthusiastic chroniclers tell us, looked like a sea of tulips. The sultans of today, on the contrary, seem to shun pomp and circumstance, as though it were a mere theatrical display of lost grandeur. What would one of those early sultans say were he to rise up from his tomb at Borsa or Torbe in Istanbul and see one of his 19th century descendants passing by dressed in a black frock coat, without a turban, without a sword, without jewels, surrounded by a crowd of insolent foreigners? I suspect he would blush with rage and shame and as a sign of his supreme displeasure, cut off the beard of his unworthy representative as Suleiman I did to Hassan with one sweep of his scimitar, the deadliest insult which can be offered to an Ottoman. It is true that there is the same difference between the sultans of the past, whose names alone terrorized Europe between the 12th and 16th century, and those of today, as there is between the Ottoman Empire, as it is now, and those of the first centuries. Those earliest sultans summed up all the youth and beauty and vigor of their race, they were not only a living image of their own people, a beautiful emblem, a precious pearl upon the sword of Islam, but in themselves alone one of its great strengths. It is impossible not to see in their personal qualities one of the main reasons why Ottoman power grew in such an extraordinary way. The most glorious period of Ottoman history lies in the first, first youth of the dynasty, lasting 193 years from Osman to Mehmed II. That was indeed a succession of powerful princes. With one exception, and taking due account of the times and of the conditions of the race, they were austere and wise and loved by their subjects. They were often fierce, but rarely unjust, and frequently even generous and benevolent towards their enemies. All of them were princes befitting their race, handsome and imposing in appearance, true lions, as their mothers called them, whose roar made the earth tremble. The Abdul Majids, the Abdul Azizis, the Murads, the Abdul Hamids are mere shadows of Padishahs in comparison with those formidable young men, born to girls of 15 and youths of 18, bred from the finest Tartar stock and from the flower of Greek, Persian and Caucasian beauty. At 14 years of age, they were commanding armies and governing provinces, and their mothers were rewarding them with slave girls as beautiful and ardent as themselves. At 16, they were already fathers, and at 70 as well. But love in them did not undermine and weaken their natural vigor of mind and body. Their minds were made of iron, as the poet sang, and their bodies of steel. They all had certain features that have been lost in their degenerate descendants. The high forehead, the arched eyebrows meeting like those of the Persians, the blue eyes of the sons of the steppe, the nose curving above the full red lips like the beak of a parrot over a cherry, and the full black beard, for which the Seraglio's poets were ever racking their brains in the effort to find charming or striking similes. They had, quote, the glance of a Taurus eagle and the strength of the king of the desert, necks like a bull, broad shoulders and wide chests that could contain all the warlike fury of their people, long arms, large joints, short bowed legs that could make the strongest Turkoman horses neigh with pain, and large hairy hands that could wield with ease the bronze maces and huge bows carried by their soldiers. And their epithets were worthy of them, the wrestler, the champion, the thunderbolt, the bone crusher, the shedder of blood, and so on. So you get this image, even in the mid-19th century, of the modern Muslim representative leader being a somewhat milksop 
bureaucratized, Europeanized, homogenized affair, anxious to comply with the dowdy, post-sacred, gray but efficient norms of Europe, and contrasted with this, no doubt, highly colored and mythologized uh, uh, image of the splendor and the color of the, uh, the, the pageantry of the Ottoman past. And also, of course, the idea of virility, masculinity, which is one of the things that has to come into any uh, consideration of leadership or role modeling. Because one of the things that we've lost nowadays is the fertile polarity and complementarity of gender. Even our kids in the schools now are being taught at an early age about gender fluidity, and it's kind of compulsory. The state belief is that gender is not an essence. Uh, this is quite worrying. Well, we saw in the case of um, Nana Asma'u what femininity in its Islamic modality can represent. A queenly, scholarly, devout, secluded perfection. And this image of kind of stereotypical Turkish manhood brandishing the scimitar is also an image of magnificence. But nowadays the phrase or the word masculinity is more likely to be hyphenated with the adjective toxic than anything else. Modernity doesn't really have a very positive way of identifying gender any longer. Femininity, perhaps problematic. Masculinity, certainly problematic. And instead, everybody is kind of uh, uh, denatured. So uh, this is one of the things that we have lost, and one reason why it's hard for us to grapple uh, what made human beings in pre-modern, you might say normative, because they lasted so long times, uh, that there were certain ideals which were aesthetic and magnificent, which nowadays in our kind of gray, everybody wears kind of black nowadays, it's really depressing. Go to any hotel and everything is beige and gray and neutral, and this is what happens uh, when the, the light of God is lost and people no longer have a sense that cheerfulness uh, is an appropriate way of expressing um, your sense of the world, uh, everything becomes uh, as dark as atheism itself. But in those times, massive color, and colorful places today. India is really colorful. Africa is really colorful. Why? Because they still believe in the sacred, and that is at the center of their lives. In any case, um, what I want to look at uh, today, or whom I want to look at, is a figure who uh, stands, as some of the other figures that we've mentioned, kind of at the cusp or the isthmus between the old and the new. Shamil was one of those people, William Williamson certainly saw both worlds. Then Asma'u and the Jihad of Hauseland a little bit before the British come and improve everything and ruin everything. Uh, and uh, the person I want to talk to today is a figure of very late classical Islam, a figure that the uh, Oriental Studies fraternity uh, regards as one of the iconic figures of early modernity in the Middle East, and this is a very contested category. Somebody who is linked with the so-called Arab Enlightenment of the 18th century, an idea that Reinhard Schuller and others have proposed and is generating a lot of controversy, was there even before Napoleon kicked open the door of the Middle East, already a transformation towards some kind of focus on uh, nature and humanism that looked a bit like European romanticism and might be more open to science. Well, this is uh, contested 
uh, problematic, but certainly something was afoot. But in any case, it's interesting to see how somebody in the 17th and 18th century is so productive and so unusual and so vibrant that he readily confounds the older uh, stereotype of an age of decay. The traditional European way of mapping Islamic civilization was that it reached its high point with uh, Abbasids, and that's when the great philosophy was written and when everything seemed to be splendid and magnificent, and they were starting to rationalize how they loved the Mu'tazilites and the philosopher in ways that were a miraculous prefiguring of the glory that was said to be 19th century Europe. And then after that, somehow you had Ghazali and Razi and everything becomes very kind of religious and repetitive. And the age of decline, conservatisme figé, sclerosis, these are the oriental stereotypes of the later Islamic period. But we're now looking at some of those figures and actually uh, disinterring their books from the libraries. And of course, as you would expect, we find wonders. One of the big things that's happening in Islamic studies nowadays is the collapse of the old paradigm of a kind of Renaissance moment in the 10th, 11th century in Baghdad, uh, and moving towards the idea that there is an endless regeneration and reconfiguration, based also in the uh, realization that the European obsession with novelty and innovation may not be the only way of valuing a civilization. Maybe there's other ways, maybe the happiness of the population. Um, could be a way of valorizing the intellectual armature of a civilization rather than this endless Whiggish idea of everything progressing towards, of course, ourselves. Uh, in the modern West, when they call something progressive, the only thing they ever mean is that which moves towards the current value set of um, secular liberalism. They have no conception of progress being desired by intelligent human beings towards any other ideal. That's the great unthought. But if we go back to just before Napoleon turns up and the Ottomans modernize and you get them wearing these kind of European frock coats and little fezzes and having big chandeliers in their palaces and being kind of uh, second best in Europe rather than best in the world, which is how the Ottomans used to be, uh, you find uh, some very interesting lively figures. And the one I want to talk about today is... Uh, Abdul Ghani bin Ismail and Nablusi. Now this is a kind of uh, test case because if you look at the manuscript libraries and you see what Muslims were reading and copying and buying 150 years ago, he was one of the great imams of the age. Mufti of Damascus, an author of great commentaries, and he wrote over 300 books. I was in Sarajevo a while back, there's plenty of his manuscripts in the libraries of Sarajevo. He was from Damascus, but the book spread very quickly. But nowadays, not really thought about. Uh, partly because the Ummah has decided to move in the direction of another Damascene, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, who lived four centuries earlier, who had a very different sense of how you deal with the world and with crisis and with diversity. And this takes us back to the question raised by Thomas Bauer in his now celebrated book, The Culture of Ambiguity. In the mid-19th century, the temper of Islamic thought shifted from uh, a culture of ambiguity to a culture of anxiety. And this obviously coincides with the uh, growth of the European empires 
and Muslim military defeat and a certain crisis of confidence amongst the elites. So in the 18th century in India, the kind of sectarian disputes that you get amongst Indian subcontinental Muslims nowadays, the Deobandis, the Brelvis, the Ahl al-Hadith, I know not what, hardly exist because there was more of a sense amongst the ulama that this ikhtilaf, different opinions, especially about matters of barzakh and ghaib, were kind of normal and part of the way things were supposed to be. In the mid-19th century, everybody is anxious, particularly after the destruction of the so-called Indian mutiny, and people start to retreat into more exclusive, propositional, defensive forms of Islam, and it becomes an age of sectarianism. And this is the case fairly ubiquitously, and Bauer's book, very, in a very erudite way, charts this transition. So we're now in an age of anxiety, not in the older, more normative age of ambiguity, where difference was actively enjoyed by a scholarly elite that um, was at ease with it, because it was at ease with the situation of the Ummah in the world. So Abdul Ghani Nablusi, 1641 to 1731. So, lives a long time, gets into the uh, 18th century significantly. Um, he is... Uh, from a very distinguished family, a uh, confluence of two great families of, of ulama, the Bani Qudama uh, and uh, the Bani Jama'a, and they've produced many great ulama down the centuries. The uh, Jama'a family are Shafi'i ulama of the city of Hama', who produced some of the great um, Shafi'i qadis, muftis, Ibn Jama'a himself. Uh, that was from his father's side, from his father's side, from the Bani Qudama, who are Hanbalis, the famous Muwafaq uh, al-Din uh, ibn Qudama, one of the greatest of all of the Hanbali uh, jurists, um, died 1223. Uh, and they are descendants of the second Khalifa Omar ibn al-Khattab. And they spend a lot of time in Jerusalem, so they become what in Arabic is known as Maqadisa, scholars of Beit al-Maqdis, or Jerusalem. Um, so the, the Bani Jama'a are for a couple of centuries uh, the Imams of Al-Aqsa Mosque. Um, and the Qudanas settle in uh, Damascus, particularly the Salihiyah district, which is on those kind of lower slopes of Jabal Qasiyun, which is also where Muhyiddin um, ibn Arabi is uh, buried. But Abdul Ghani Nablusi is known as the man from Nablus because the family spends some time in Nablus after the Ottoman conquest of Jerusalem, which is 1516. The Ottomans, of course, build up Jerusalem. Um, its present urban form is basically from the time of Suleiman the Magnificent, who really cherished the city. Um, but the, many of the family go to Nablus. If you've been to the West Bank, you've probably been to Nablus. It's actually quite a beautiful place. Founded by the Emperor Vespasian, Neapolis, the new town, when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, um, they created this new town nearby. And it's famous for the Samaritan presence on um, Jabal al-Tur nearby. It's a separate religion. They consider themselves um, to be the true Jews, but they're not Jews, and they're not treated as Jews by the Israeli uh, occupying authorities. Completely separate religion um, on this mountain. There's only about a thousand of them left, and they're just left to their own devices under the Ottomans. So an interesting place, but also a place that's produced uh, 
considerable number of scholars, and it's a holy place because the tomb of uh, Prophet Joseph Yusuf is there, uh, which, to judge from old photographs and sketches, was quite a beautiful place with a lot of Quranic calligraphy and Ottoman tiling. Since 1967, with the Israeli occupation, uh, it's been out of bounds to non-Jews, so it's now full of settlers. And even though Nablus is part of the Palestinian Authority, it's still illegal for Palestinians to go there. It's, it's, the entrance is controlled by uh, the Israeli army, and you have to show that you're Jewish before you're allowed in. So an ancient place that's now uh, really tense, but it's worth going to this big Palestinian refugee camp and a very weird Romanian priest who's built a huge church just outside the entrance to uh, Nablus. So I talked to this priest, and I said, you've got the West Bank's biggest Palestinian refugee camp right opposite your church. Do you have any problems? He said, no, the only problems I've ever had is with the Jewish settlers. They keep beating me up, and once they left an axe in my head, <laughs> he went to the hospital like that. So it's now very kind of sad and tense, but it was once uh, a centre for Olama, and Abdul Ghani Nablusi is from the people of Nablus. Um, then they move to Damascus, and quite quickly they become uh, hailed as great scholars. His grandfather, Ismail, becomes the main preacher of the Umayyad Mosque in Damascus, and also head of the Darul Hadith al-Ashrafiya, which is one of the big madrasas of Damascus, which is a Darul Hadith, obviously, a college specialising in Hadith uh, studies. He becomes the Shafi'i Mufti of um, Damascus, like most people in the Levant um, at this time, their, their Shafi'is, uh, and also becomes a successful businessman. So the family is always wealthy. Um, Abdul Ghani uh, inherits uh, quite a lot of wealth, and this becomes uh, significant. The father is also a preacher in the uh, Umayyad Mosque in Damascus, and in 1641, Abdul Ghani Nablusi is born and the hagiographers record all kinds of interesting foretellings by local saints that this is going to be a remarkable, uh, remarkable star in the Damascene firmament. <coughs> and we're told that by the age of five, under the very close care of his father, he became a hafiz uh, and memorized a number of other texts shortly afterwards, including Al-Fiyah of Ibn Malik, which is the basic thousand-line a poem on Arabic grammar, rather well, a dry thing for small kids to work through, but um, he memorised it. The Shatabia, which is the basic mnemonic poem which helps you to understand the principles that govern the seven different variant readings of the Qur'an. Uh, uh, the Umm al-Barahin, uh, the Aqidah text of Sanusi and other uh, key standard texts. But he, by the age of 12, is already well on his way. At the age of 12, his father dies and his mother takes over. And the women are often scholars uh, in uh, Cairo and uh, Syria at this time. Uh, this follows the Mamluk tradition when you know, some of the great scholars were women and the, the Olamat would insist that, uh, uh, so that they could be in, their children would be nurtured in a family of learning they would marry women who were also known scholars. So Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani uh, marries a woman who is also an independent Hadith teacher in her own right, Inas Khatun. Um, she's 18, but she's already giving ijazas in Hadith to some of the great scholars of Cairo. So this is a tradition that is uh, 
alive. So the teaching of the young Abdul Ghani is now in the hands of his uh, mother. He attends some of the big hadith classes, particularly Naj Najmadin al-Ghazi, who is perhaps the greatest uh, hadith luminary of the day. Uh, so his father dies, uh, and uh, his father has had two wives, or two widows, so the books are divided between them, and most of them are sold off. And one of the things uh, Sheikh Abdul Ghani tries to do in later life is to track down his father's books to find out where they went and to see if he can um, buy them back. And by the time he dies, uh, his house is something of a, an amazing library already. Um, so he is focusing very much on, on hadith, but also on the, uh, the fiqh tradition. There's a very strong Hanbali tradition in Damascus, more really than anywhere else in the Islamic world at the time. Generally, the ulama have historically voted with their feet and not appreciated very literalist interpretations of doctrine and law. So the Han Hanbali school is the smallest. Um, but Dalma, which is a suburb of Damascus, is historically a traditional Hanbali uh, redoubt. I suppose continues to be to this day, despite the, the recent uh, misfortunes. Uh, he's also reading a lot of Sufi texts, Ibn Arabi, Afif al-Din Tilmasani, Abdul Karim al-Jili, um, Ibn al-Farid, uh, particularly that which is poetic. And what is kind of getting a reputation for as a teenager in Damascus is somebody who really, really knows the Arabic language. And to this day, some ulama, when they think of him, will think of his, his poetry and his works on uh, literary criticism and rhetoric. Uh, so the first time he really makes a splash in Damascus is at the age of 25. He kind of publishes a poem about the Holy Prophet, Ali Salatu um, It's in 150 lines, and it's obviously in the huge riverine tradition of literature that produces the Borda and other material. And it rhymes in meme, like the Borda, because that's the, the letter with which the name of the Holy Prophet begins, and it follows that convention very conventionally. But it is also what's called one of the Badi'ayat, and Badi'ah is a particular tradition of Arabic literary culture, which uh, doesn't just wish material to be rhetorically correct, but wishes to make a line of poetry or a piece of art prose absolutely packed with the most complex and brilliant kind of show-stopping displays of linguistic erudition, unusual words, strange internal rhythms, um, double entendres, metaphors, similes. Uh, it's, uh, Badia means kind of shining or outstanding. It's even one of the divine names in the Quran. Badia samawati wal ard is kind of the shining originator of the magnificence of creation. So the, the procreation, the literary procreation, which is the work of the poet, is in traditional Arabic culture something that is considered to reach its highest point with these really difficult kind of tour de force uh, exhibitions which to us is very difficult to read now because who now knows the 70 different Arabic words for wine. Maybe your average educated Arabic newspaper reader might know two or three, but the others yeah, could be Chinese. But back then they inhabited the language and the language was something that they kind of ate and drank every day and they experienced the aesthetic of it. 
uh, and they appreciated unusual figures. Uh, and this was what the elites used to do in the Arab world before television and Al Jazeera took over. They would recite poetry to each other. And I remember seeing that in uh, some uh, households in Cairo in the <coughs> 80s. After the dinner, they'd sit around um, and uh, so play games with poetry. So the person whose house it was would recite a poem and then stop at a particular point. And then somebody else present would have to continue with another poem that was in the same meter and using the same rhyme. And then the first person who couldn't do that, when it's your turn going around the table, is kind of out and uh, it would be a great shame. I didn't do very well at that kind of Arab parlor game, but uh, it was a reminder of how things used to be, that the language and the cultivation of the fine sounds and the subtle allusions of the language was a kind of almost sensual thing. It was like drinking cognac after a meal. Um, it was uh, a refined thing that was very widely pursued. Uh, so I just caught a glimpse of that. But in 18th century Damascus, it's what everybody does, and it's part of being a, uh, a civilized, uh, educated Muslim human being. So he uh, jumps into this ocean and produces this poem about the Holy Prophet, this Mimiya. And it's in a particular kind of tradition, though it's, it's called Nafahat al-Azhar fi Madhin Nabi al-Mukhtar. And he's in one of these sessions, and there are these grey-bearded muftis around, and this kind of young squirt is there and reciting his own poetry. He's not quoting from Ibn al-Mu'at, this is his own poetry. All right. He does a few verses, and then a few more, and eventually they ask him to recite his complete qasida, and they're completely amazed. Uh, some of them don't really believe that it's his. They think, hmm, it's not possible, because as part of this Badi'at tradition, one of the things you do is to incorporate in every line of your poem one of the figures of Arabic rhetoric. So a particular kind of metaphor, a particular kind of alliteration. And in some of the poems, you actually use a word that is cognate with the technical term for that alliteration. And a lot of people read the Burda, for instance, they think it's just a nice sort of archaizing poem about the Holy Prophet. They don't realize that in, a lot of, in, in every line, there are technical allusions to forms of Arabic grammar and alliteration that scholars will recognize. It's a kind of literary salon piece, a tour de force. Um, so somehow this Abdul Ghani has come up with this shining qasida, and some people kind of openly say, we don't really think that you could have done this, although we haven't heard it before. So he says, all right, in two weeks I'll come back with a commentary showing that I understand this and that I wrote it. And the uh, uh, chief mufti is there. No, the Naqib al-Ashraf is the head of the guild of the prophetic descendants. And he says, all right, we'll give you three weeks. So he comes back in three weeks' time with uh, something that is still on the shelves of Arabic bookshops everywhere. And you can see it's, it took a long time to write. Uh, but he does it in three weeks. <laughs> and uh, he presents this, and some of it is in poetry, and some of it is in prose, and it quotes the earlier Badiat works, the Burda and other works, and it's clear that 
this is all his own work. And he ends, he somehow find, found time at the end of it to write another poem of the same length, it's in here somewhere, uh, which does the same thing but which explicitly names in each line the literary form that he's using in that line. And this kind of blows their minds and they kind of recognise. And from this point onwards, the rather grudging, judgmental world of Damascene professors recognises that this is a new phenomenon. Of course, they're critical, but they're also happy because they realise that um, they're being joined by somebody who is really worthy of the tradition. So, um, yeah, as the years have gone by, because one of the things about these late scholars in Islamic history is that they're inheriting a lot from the past. In the second, third century, the libraries are fairly basic. A thousand years later, the libraries in Damascus are absolutely packed with wonders. And it's worth noting that nowadays we don't actually have access to the riches of Islamic civilization. Not just because we don't read, but because of all of the books that have ever been written in Islamic languages, 99% at least remain in manuscript form. You have to go to the library and drink tea with the custodian and give him a gift of some kind, and then he brings out this miracle, which somebody looked at 150 years ago, but generally the Ummah is busy with Ibn Taymiyyah or learning to drive or whatever, and it's gathering dust. Uh, only 1% has even been printed in Arabic. And of that 1%, only a tiny fraction exists in English. So where are we in terms of getting even a drop from this ocean? This is important to recognize that the Ummah has not served its literary heritage terribly well. Of Abdul Ghani's books, maybe out of 300 books, only 60 have actually been printed, which is very extraordinary. And of those, only one or two have been done into English. Um, and even translations and even editions are problematic. So we're, we're really guilty of a terrible neglect. Uh, if you go to the National Library in Cairo, okay, recently they had to spruce it up. King Juan Carlos of Spain, actually, because he's Spanish, is interested in the Arabic heritage. So he goes to Cairo and the sort of chain-smoking generals think, oh, we'll take him to the pyramids or whatever. And he said, I want to see the National Library in Cairo. And these generals kind of look at each other and they say, I think we have got such a thing. <laughs> right? And so they find out that it's an absolute physical catastrophe with pages on the floor and the windows broken and birds flying in and out and it's a horror. So they have to pay for it to be painted and a few cases brought in to make it look less shameful. But it, it's, it's pretty appalling. They have some of the most beautiful and amazing books in the world. And then you open the manuscript, like in Cambridge, you open the manuscript and it's kind of like being in a surgical theatre. You have to wear white gloves and a particular kind of pencil and there's a disapproving librarian looking over her glasses. Uh, in Cairo, Tfadal slap it down in front of you. And you open it up and then they bring your shay, your tea, and they put it on the manuscript and it leaves a ring. Mm. Anyway, this is the Ummah, uh, really decadent. It's, uh, yeah, what can, what can one say? But the treasures are still there, and people still find the most amazing riches and beauty, and just in terms of the bookbinding and the calligraphy and the paper making, it's, 
Anyway, treasures, uh, buried treasures, and so his heritage has been to some extent neglected, partly because you know, people find that very high, exalted, deliberately uh, difficult Arabic, uh, just hard work. But he's produced this, this thing, and as I say, it comes late in the evolution of Arabic literature, so it's already quite almost Baroque, Rococo, you might say, with all of these flourishes uh, for a very refined aesthetic sensibility. Uh, and over the centuries, the tradition of these Badi Ayat has developed so that Sharaf um, al-Din Atifashi had increased the previous record for the number of literary forms you could get in a Badi'i Qasida, which had been held um, uh, by Abu Bakr al-Hilli, which was 37, he ups it to 70. And the whole Ummah is kind of cheering, it's got to 70. Yeah. Uh, it's like one of those sort of TV contests. I don't know, you have to get the high score. And these are the stars of the age. And then along comes Zakiyadin ibn Abil Asba' who manages to produce a Mimiya Qasida, a Badi'iya, that has 90 different literary figures in it. Great applause from all over the Ummah. Ah, and so the tradition by this time is that it has to be in the meter called Basit and it has to rhyme in Mim and it becomes a kind of literary genre. And then Bosiri comes up with his Borda, which has 151 figures of speech in it. And if you know your Arabic literary rhetorical jargon, you can see how he indicates that he's putting them in. Uh, but they say, if you include Tejnis, which is one of these figures, uh, which has lots of subcategories as one figure, uh, then actually he only gets 140 points. Um, that's the uh, border. But it was celebrated in its time as a kind of literary tour de force as much as it was a kind of devotional performance. Um, okay, so let me see, despite the fact that this is in uh, fairly highfalutin Arabic, see if we can read a little bit from his... Uh, <coughs> Amazing text, not very systematically, but just to give you a sense of this is in the uh, sort of expressly written commentary, and so he's giving a history of this Badia form. And he's given the early history from Ibn al Mu'taz and Abdul Aziz al Hilli and the early exponents of this art poetry. So you can see here that he's being critical. Then after Al-Hilli comes the great learned scholar Taqiyuddin Abu Bakr Al-Hamawi, he's from Hama, so he's also a Syrian. May Allah have mercy on him. And then he opposed him. So he's writing this Qasida as a kind of way of debunking the earlier Qasida, taking it line by line and showing why his predecessor's poem was not much good and doing something even better. Uh, but he didn't actually introduce a larger number of literary figures. But it may even be that he was less successful. He scored fewer points uh, in listing these different literary uh, figures. Um, but he certainly didn't go above the uh, number. Uh, right. 
And then he wrote a commentary on his own Qasida, his own poem. And then, أَخَذَ فِيهِ بِأَذْيَالِ الْإِطَالَةِ وَأَلْبَسَهُ حُلَلَ السَّآمَةِ وَالْمَلَالَةِ But in this uh, garment of the commentary, the garment was made of uh, uh, an excessively long tailcoat of um, verbosity. And he gave his uh, qasida a robe to wear made of boredom and repetition. And in it, he criticized some of the great ones of earlier times, etc. So he's kind of suggesting that his poem was, even though it was popular in Damascus, uh, an embarrassing piece of uh, uselessness. And then see who he has next. Um, since nowadays we're very gender sensitive. And then after him came the most meritorious woman of her time, Aisha al Ba'uniya. Uh, this is the famous uh, Muslim poetess and faqih, fiqh scholar of the 16th century. There's a book published about her recently because her works have survived. They're in the libraries there. Her house is still there um, in Damascus, they pointed out. So Aisha al-Ba'uniya. وَنَظَّمَتْ قَصِيدَةً عَلَى مِثَالِ And she wrote a poem kind of following in the footsteps of his poem, but without mentioning explicitly the literary figure, to make the expressions flow more naturally, and the words to be more appropriate. And she wrote a short commentary on it, which I've seen myself written in her own handwriting. May Allah have mercy on her. Asfarat fihi an bayan, in which he unveiled the beauties of discourse. Biqadrid taqa wa hasbid taysir. Wallahu bima ya'maluna khabir basir. Wa indama shahadtu hadhi al-badi'iyyati al-arba. And then he says, having seen these four great badi'a poems, uh, and he includes Aisha al-Ba'uniyas as the most recent, um, which is interesting. He then explains how he wanted to follow suit and create now these two poems, one of which doesn't explicitly mention the literary figures and the other of which does. So you can see something of the almost uh, the, the delectation uh, with which uh, the Damascene elite at the time um, uh, took their, their Arabic. It was really their, their, their meat and drink. And his, in this very difficult and demanding literary world um, already emerged as a star. So, as I mentioned, many still remember him as a poet. He has three diwans of poetry which are published and uh, widely respected. He also has, and this is one of his kind of novelties and idiosyncrasy, an entire commentary on the Holy Quran written in poetry. It's in 5,000 verses, um, which he calls Bawatin al-Quran. And as far as anybody knows, this is the first attempt to create a complete trans uh, interpretation, tafsir of the Quran, in verse. Might seem strange, but you have to remember that these people are so steeped in poetry that they could compose it, they could just extemporize 
Uh, they didn't need to sit down and sharpen their pencils and work out what would rhyme with what. It just came to them naturally. Like Jalaluddin Rumi, who just composed, produced it, and people would write it down as it came. It wasn't our modern-day problem of writer's block and going to sort of a writer's course with some novelist in some stately home and then figuring out how to write chapter one. It just poured out of them. And Rumi, what an enormous pouring. Uh, those Diwan's, eight volumes of Diwan Shamsi Tabriz. And it was all spontaneous, as far as we can tell. So, and it's still the case um, that you can find really old people in the Arab world who can still do that easily, who can, as it were, switch languages and start talking poetry. Uh, one, the person who I knew in Jeddah more than 30 years ago as Sayyid Hamid al-Mihdar, who had been the hereditary ruler of the city of Tarim in Hadramaut, and his family published his political letters to other rulers and mayors in Hadramaut, uh, and they were all in poetry. That's the kind of culture it was. It's like the mayor of Cambridge writing about Brexit to the mayor of St. Neots or something, and it's a beautiful poem, like something from Milton. Uh, a different world, but that was just how one did it, and it didn't take any time. It just came, flowed naturally. So he is inhabiting that, that, uh, that lost world. Now, the Bawatan al-Qur'an, his poetic commentary, you, as the title indicates, the inwardnesses, the hidden parts of the Qur'an, it's more tafsir ishari, in other words, a Sufi type of tafsir, because we've already mentioned that as part of the developed spiritual culture of his time, uh, people are reading Ibn al-Farid, Ibn Arabi. Ibn al-Farid is the greatest Arab Sufi poet um, by most estimations, who is from Cairo. Uh, and this becomes important for him, as it was important for just about everybody at the time. However, his relationship to Tasawwuf is an idiosyncratic one, and we're still trying to figure out exactly what was going on. Um, we know that at a fairly early age he does seem to have been initiated into different turuq in a way that was almost just a way of being polite. He went to see such and such a sheikh and he could see that you were learned in this and that you were pure-hearted and he gave you bay'ah like kind of giving you a a sort of a, a gift of some kind. Here's one of my books, here's my ijaza, here's my silsila, here's my bay'ah, and uh, it wasn't uh, a big deal. But actually his own suluk uh, coincides in a strange way with something that we find in other early modern or late classical uh, Muslim writers such as Abdul Qadir al-Jazairi, who was uh, another person who settled in Damascus uh, um, a little bit later, exiled from Algeria, by the French, who <coughs> was a great commentator on the tradition of Ibn Arabi, who was important for Damascenes because <coughs> that's where he's buried, <coughs> but who seems to have taken his formal initiation at the end of his spiritual path rather than the beginning. And this is uh, <coughs> something that seems to be uh, an interesting idiosyncrasy of the age. But uh, Abdul Ghani in particular was very against excessive formalization, uh, which is one reason why in some of his works on doctrine, on kalam, his commentary on the Umm al-Barahin, for instance, uh, he doesn't reject the use of logic, but is not happy about the use of some of the more speculative, syllogistic forms <coughs> of modal logic <coughs> to establish important truths about the divine. 
He doesn't go down Ibn Taymiyyah's road. Ibn Taymiyyah thinks logic is an inappropriate, unprophetic way of trying to uh, work out the real purport of, of divine speech, but is not really uh, one with the hardline Hanafi Maturidi speculative theologians who are kind of dominating uh, at the time of Qashashi, Ibrahim al-Qurani, uh, Arif Hikmet and so forth, who so are real hardline mutakallimun. <coughs> he uh, is taken by his father to see the Mevlavis, the whirling dervishes in Damascus, um, but that's not his particular mashrab, which is interesting because with his very refined literary taste, you'd have thought he'd be really attracted to a tariqah that is very aesthetic, the beautiful orchestration and the complex liturgies and the turning and the symbolism and Rumi. He knows Persian, so he's, uh, he can read Rumi and does have a relationship with him, as we will see. But that's not actually his mashrab in Sufism, which turns out to be quite distinctive. Um, he takes a journey when he's still young to Istanbul and to Edirne, which is on the, in the European part of Turkey, which was the capital of the Ottomans before Mehmed II conquers Istanbul and uh, has always been a major centre for ulama. Maybe the greatest Ottoman Darul Hadith was in Edirne. The building is still there. Um, and on his journey, he meets a Khalwati, he meets a, a Qadri sheikh. Uh, and the Qadri sheikh, who is a reputed sheikh of Anatolia, as soon as he comes in, offers him the bay'ah and also offers him the ceremonial sword, which in some branches of the Qadriya uh, is a symbol of a higher degree of initiation. The sword has a certain symbolic significance in the world of Tasawwuf, as in exoteric Islam. Um, it's interesting to note that uh, the tradition of giving khutbahs in the Hagia Sophia Mosque in Istanbul until Ataturk stopped it in about 1930, that it was regarded as the, the senior minbar of Istanbul, was that uh, there were kind of interesting miracles uh, identified with the place. So for instance, it's said that when you stand on the minbar there, it's really cold. They say there's a, a, a cold window, sok penjere, which nobody can really identify, which keeps the, the preacher feeling really cold, which is a way of uh, pr enabling him to overcome his sort of anger, his temperamental egotism, and to help him remember that even though he's on this huge, gigantic uh, pulpit, he's just a little human being. And also the tradition of giving khutbahs there was instead of the staff, the khatib would always uh, preach with a sword because the city was taken by the sword. Um, but in the context of Tasawwuf, uh, the Futuwa traditions often had uh, the investiture with a kind of ritual sword, often uh, complexly uh, enameled and engraved as a symbol of uh, the, the greater jihad. So this is an oddity, and he remarks on it almost in passing, and his biographers refer to it. So clearly, these Sufis have a very high regard for the young man. Uh, he uh, is following a fairly uh, non-ritualized form of tasawwuf that relates in many ways to his own family's tradition, particularly the Qudamas, who are Hanbalis. Uh, and the Hanbalis have always been very close to the Qadri tariqah. Abdul Qadri Jilani was a, a, a Qadri. And his ancestor, Muwafiq al-Din ibn Qudama, the great faqih, the great jurist of the family, <coughs> had travelled 
to Baghdad to take the, take the Bayah, uh, but an austere, non-philosophical, uh, devotional type of tasawwuf. Um, Khwaja Abdullah Ansari, perhaps the best-known Sufi writer of what we now call Afghanistan. Um, it's also a Qadri Hanbali. It's a well-known connection. So some of the formal institutions like Irada and Bay'ah and the circles of dhikr and initiation things seem to sit quite lightly on him. He does, however, take a bay'ah much later in the Naqshbandi tariqah from somebody called Abu Sa'id al-Balkhi, who's a Central Asian. Uh, and the bay'ah seems to have been a more formal affair next to the, the, the maqam of John the Baptist, uh, Sayyidina Yahya, which is in, in, in the middle of the Umayyad Mosque and which is a traditional place uh, for investitures, uh, giving ijazas and giving bay'ah in Damascus. <coughs> and he receives this, uh, uh, this authorization and he replies by again delivering an extemporized poem. This time it's in Persian. Okay, perfect Persian ghazal is coming out just as an act of uh, gratitude. Uh, so he does know Persian, uh, Arabic and also Turkish. And of course this is part of the Ottoman Empire at the time. But it's interesting that his biographers, including Al-Ghazi and somebody called Hussein Tlemsani, uh, uh, who is his uh, main biographer, who is his student, don't actually mention Sufi sheikhs amongst in the long lists of his teachers. It would be conventional, but it doesn't really seem to have been very formalized. <coughs> and here we find one of the very unusual aspects of his personality, <coughs> which is to do with his own human individuality and is in some ways quite unconventional in that in many of his writings he insists that his principal spiritual blessings and guidance came through dreams of people who were long dead, people from the Barzakh. It's not really supposed to be the principal form of spiritual instruction in Islam but this is what he said um, and particularly in the Naqshbandi tradition. So it said that Baha'uddin Naqshbandi, who's the founder of the Naqshbandi, learnt much of his wisdom from earlier uh, teachers, uh, including particularly Abul Khaliq Hujdavani, um, who's uh, mid-12th century Central Asia, is still a town of Hujdavan, and you can visit the Mazar and the mosque, it's a very uh, limpid, peaceful place, uh, and accepted from him many of the inward orientations uh, and these I would say are the principal mashrab that determine uh, the spiritual orientation of Abdul Ghani Nablusi who is as I say an unusual person in many ways so uh, Baha'uddin Naqshband uh, is known as somebody who stresses service so famously he spends seven years with uh, the labourers who are fixing the roads of Khorasan as part of his process of breaking the ego. And he also spends seven years uh, as a servitor of the stray dogs on the streets of Bukhara. And so he says that his first moment of real spiritual intimacy with God came when he was binding up the poor of a sick dog and the dog looked at him in a particular way and in the moment of that gaze he felt that he knew God. It's a famous moment in the history of the Naqshbandiya. So it's a way of 
but it's an austere way of service. And again, it kind of suits Abdul Ghani because the Naqshbandi are not really very ritualized by and large. It's quite a primordial kind of tariqah, which has in many places helped it to survive. I remember in the communist period, it was actually on Karl Marx's birthday, and I was really young, I went to the mazar of um, Imam al-Bukhari, which is in a village, um, Khartank, about half an hour's drive north of Samarkand. Uh, and uh, I was hanging out there, and the imam came along, little Uzbek guy with Uzbek cap, and uh, I speak a kind of Arabic, and he speaks a kind of Arabic. And he says, uh, yes, we're all, of course, we follow the party here, and we love the party, and we keep talking. He said, you know, it's Ramadan, and we are fasting in Ramadan. And when he got to see that I wasn't KGB, um, he thought, as a foreigner, I was probably fairly safe. And then he said, well, we keep it going because of tariqat, we're all Naqshbandiya. And that's the, the mashrab. And it's because the Naqshbandiya have as one of their forms, most of them, the idea of silent dhikr. Party is listening, everything's bugged, can't do anything. They're not up to anything. You've got a room with 80 men with beards, young and old, doing this Naqshbandiya. Can't hear a thing. So because uh, of the kind of discursive ideological nature of Marxism. I think nothing's going on because there's no teaching being exchanged. So that's how it uh, was maintained and uh, it's still maintained. There have been some very interesting studies of the capacity of the Naqshbandis, unlike some other tariqas, to exist in conditions of oppression. In Ataturk's Turkey as well. It's very difficult to abolish something that doesn't really have rituals, doesn't need paraphernalia, doesn't need special meeting houses. People aren't saying anything in their ceremonies. Um, so, uh, and he has this sort of Naqshbandi thing, which, and I want to read a little bit of the teachings of the, of Khoja Abdul Khalid Rujdavani, who uh, Abdul Ghani felt he had a particular unseen connection to, who was kind of his teacher from beyond the grave, if you like. He dies in 1179. Now, in Islamic tradition, you can't learn formally uh, from somebody who is no longer in this world, and you can't get a fatwa from somebody in a dream. Instead, it's just general indications and urgings to the life um, of the Akhirah. So the Nasihat Nami, one of the great books of our civilization, really, of uh, Abdul Khalid Rujdavani, uh, says this, and it really sums up Abdul Ghani's mashrab. Learn fiqh and hadith. Do not mix with illiterate mystics. Offer prayers in congregation. Do not seek after fame. Do not accept any office. Do not be a surety for anybody. Do not go to the court. Do not mix with rulers or princes. Do not build a khanakha, a Sufi lodge. Do not condemn mystic music. Do not hear too much mystic music. Eat only what is permitted. So far as you can, do not marry a woman who wants material comforts. Your heart should be full of grief, your body as if of an ailing person, your eyes wet, your actions sincere, your prayers earnest, your dress tattered, your company dervishes, uh, and your house should be your mosque, and your friend should be God. Uh, and then the, the famous principles of the Naqshbandiya, the Arkan, which I think really help us to understand uh, the teachings of Abdul Ghani, and it's always, because these are universal virtues, 
need to be um, borne in mind. So here are the principles. Hush dardam. Whenever you inhale or exhale, remember the presence of God. Nazar parqadam. Keep an eye on every step you take, which means kind of humbly looking down. But it also means that whatever step you take is to some well-considered goal. Safar darvatan, which means travelling back to the homeland, to the divine, which means considering what you do in the light of death and your uh, eternal destiny. Khalvatar anjuman, being alone in the crowd. In other words, when you're sitting on the Bakerloo line or something and stuff is going on, you are inwardly centred, you're not spacing out, you're present with the, the divine, you are alone with the divine in every situation. Yed karat, being in a state of dhikr. Bazgard, watch out for what you're thinking. Nigahdasht, think about what you're looking at and where your mind is wandering. Yaddasht, uh, concentrate and make sure that your thoughts are not lazy but are disciplined and directed. Um, so those are the basic eight principles of the Naqbandiya which become hugely important to Maulana Abdul Ghani. So we find this again and again uh, and it becomes actually a solace to him uh, that he, even though in many ways is alienated from the, the, the people of the city of Damascus who he often has problems with uh, and will not associate with sort of rulers and the like, he feels a little bit of a loner, but his company and his friends are the spirits of the departed. And he says a lot about this, the, the vision of the Holy Prophet in dreams, the vision of others in dreams, uh, and even in waking states. He has books about this, his own experiences, and what it could mean. And of course, it's not part of fiqh, it's not part of sharia, it's part of the wijdan, uh, experiential or empirical. Islam, the, the bit of religion that tends to vanish quite quickly at the hands of rationalizing or fundamentalist reformers. Uh, it's that tender, vulnerable bit of Islam. But it is something that, again, is worth bearing in mind. One of the things that I think he teaches us is the need <coughs> to be alert to the enigma and the mystery of experience in religion. Nowadays, Islam is not so much uh, uh, existential as propositional. This is one of the changes that happened in the uh, 19th century. It's not so much about being with God, but about being right as much as one can. And for Abdul Ghani, the idea of the divine presence and proximity, the qurb, and the unreality uh, in the eyes of the barzakh of time and distance, does enable him in ways that to the modern mind seem um, really strange to connect with certain realities. <coughs> now those realities still happen to people and people have all kinds of odd experiences, syzygies, odd encounters, premonitions, um, uh, and want to know what they mean. Quite often people email me saying, oh, you know, uh, I had this very strong image of my uncle's name at 
last week on Wednesday. And then when I got home, they told me he'd died, that kind of thing. And a lot of people have stuff like that. And because it's from the ghaib, it can't be regulated and it's not clear what you do with it. It's not part of aqidah or part of sharia, but it is part of the life of believers, particularly if their hearts are receptive and not uh, dusty and turbulent as a result of allowing the heart to be endlessly distracted by the latest text and the traffic and the other stuff that, that veils us. What has desacralized and disenchanted modern man is not so much Newton and Darwin and that kind of thing, but rather the fact that people have no stillness and the heart is constantly agitated and can't really see anything any longer. We don't have those uh, contemplative experiences, but for him it's uh, important and it's part of the general human experience. I would say most people, if you really get to know somebody, at some point they'll tell you something that they know doesn't really have a, an explanation, but that even Islamically doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense or to be particularly helpful, but clearly doesn't have a material explanation. Even today people will have those things because we can't be completely disconnected from the spirit and our true nature. And often people remember those things and cherish them and they become an important prop to them in an age that insists that the surface of things is all that the thing can possibly be. Um, I was recently reading a biography of somebody who I thought was about the most kind of uh, calculating and profane of people who was uh, Air Vice Marshal Hugh Dowding. He was the head of fighter command during the Second World War. So he wins the Battle of Britain, so I guess a historically really gigantic person. But nobody really liked him. Uh, his nickname in the war office was Stuffy. Uh, he didn't have many friends. Um, he was rather melancholy because he'd married the girl of his dreams and then she died the next year and uh, he was quiet. But. Um, after the war, he starts to write about things that he's already been imprudent enough to talk about when he's sort of hanging out with Churchill and deciding where to put the squadrons. You know, enormously, cataclysmically vital decisions when the country really thought it would be overrun. And my grandmother was given a box of grenades to keep under her bed so when the tanks went by, she could drop grenades on the heads of the Germans. It was kind of Brexit, but a trillion times worse. It was a real time of existential panic for the country. And he was the one who was responsible for this last line of defence. And uh, he felt uh, regularly uh, the presence of dead fighter pilots. And he started to talk about this. He had dreams, or he felt they were there in his office. And he kept talking about this. Actually, at the end of the Battle of Britain, even though he'd, I guess, saved the country, they sacked him. Because he kept talking about these sort of labe things. And there was, you know, I know that that fighter pilot was with that squadron and he didn't survive. Uh, he felt, and it's, I think, to do, or perhaps it's to do with this Nazar Bar Qadam, this immense attentiveness to the moment which has to be the way of the warrior. It's the samurai uh, preternatural awareness of everything, or you die. That he was in that state, and these ghaib things, who knows, um, 
appeared and he thought maybe they're not ghosts, maybe they're spirits that were attached to them and he didn't really have the language of jinn or the way in which we necessarily indeterminately talk about these things but it became a very important thing. So at one point he has a dream, he writes about this after the war, uh, he has a dream about a fighter pilot who's died and the fighter pilot who's called Max says you should invite my mother out to lunch, you'll like her. So, because he's already kind of believing in this world that's, that's become really real, he looks up the family and he finds the mother's, uh, the bereaved mother's address and he invites her out to lunch. She's kind of, what is this? Huh? But uh, she has also, according to Air Vice Marshal Dowding, uh, when she tells him afterwards, she has had a dream of his name, Hugh. Hmm. So they have this lunch in, uh, in wartime London and uh, eventually they end up getting married and it becomes a kind of story because she's very keen on esoteric things uh, she makes him a vegetarian and she starts Britain's first ethical cosmetics company so she's in that world of being really aware of without having much to do with Christianity or any particular religion but I thought that was interesting that somebody coming out of that really kind of high-tech conflict uh, sitting behind a desk in the, uh, the, the, the war ministry could have had those kinds of experiences which, which stayed with him. But, um, we struggle to articulate that, but for so many people in history they have had some sort of thinning of the veil and an awareness of uh, the mysteries of the Balzach, which usually we don't have words to convey and we come up with strange ideas like seances and mediums and ghosts and it's not like that at all, it's something harder to put into words which is why religion leaves it, kind of, in Islam you're not really supposed to delve into those things but sometimes people have those experiences anyway. So this seems to have been important for Abdul Ghani uh, that he communes with uh, the great ulama of the past, I'm not giving him fatwas but they're somehow a presence uh, that supports him so he has a relationship with Jalaluddin Rumi, for instance. It helps, I guess, talking in Persian. If you see somebody who speaks Persian in a dream. So uh, he, he's, he writes about this and he writes books about um, the many ulama in the past who have had similar experiences and the validity of taking spiritual teachings from people who are from another plane or another age. And this seems to have helped him with his loneliness uh, so at the age of 40, we have the kind of Ghazali-type crisis moment in his career, which is kind of enigmatic, rather like Ghazali's crisis. Um, some modern scholars of a reductionist bent say that he suffered from depression. Mm, probably not, because he was actually extremely active. People who suffer from depression tend to be a bit kind of listless and unfocused. But some of his great works were written during this uh, period. Um, uh, so at the age of 40, he uh, goes into a kind of khalwa, a retreat. Um, he'd never been particularly sociable. Um, so when he's still in his 20s, Damascus is excited because the Imam of the Haram and Medina, Abdurrahman al-Khiyari, who's a great Kalam scholar and Sufi, is visiting. And of course there's a big reception to honour him. 
And uh, Al-Khiyari has heard of Abdul Ghani, looks around, but he's not there. And he asks about him and says, well, he's, he's at home as usual. So he has to have a, a special audience with him. They converse privately, which indicates, I guess, that already in his 20s, Abdul Ghani is kind of known internationally. And we're also told that when they had the conversation, it was carried out entirely in poetry, of course. Um, so Khiyari later writes that Sheikh Abdul Ghani is one who saw mixing with people as a waste of time, with the path of happiness and expansion, bust being the worship of God in the privacy of one's own home and avoiding public life. And he said he actually prefers associating with books than with people. So this uh, Khalwa, when he kind of formally disappears, and he really disappears for seven years, happens in the year 1680. Um, Modern scholars say, well, maybe it's because of academic rivalries or maybe because of abuse, uh, the roughness of street life and he's very refined and can't take it, so he just stays at home. Well, we know that he's written poetry in which he's critical of the city, so he says things like this. O you that intends to enter this city, enter not, for in Damascus devils dwell. Take care that the darkness which you will behold may not extinguish your light. From this garden city you should run and flee not thinking them to be roses and narcissi. So at this time he writes a book to explain the uh, practice of seclusion and it's basically a hadith collection uh, because there are plenty of hadith that indicate that solitude and avoiding the crowd are appropriate in times of fitna and particularly in the end times. So this is his book, Tekmil al-Nu'ot fi Luzum al-Buyot. Mm, which is uh, basically, uh, you translate the title as something like um, uh, The Perfection of Discourse on Remaining at Home, which he publishes in 1685. So he writes things like this, because obviously people are criticising him. He's not even coming out for the five daily prayers. He's praying at home. Whosoever is certain that the harms he will receive through mixing with people when attending the prayer, through leaving those things, then he will have a valid excuse in leaving them. While in Mecca, I saw a sheikh from the people of knowledge who had secluded himself and did not attend the sacred mosque for the congregational prayers, despite his proximity to it and despite the purity of his wealth. Because scholars would not regard it as valid, for instance, to pay for a horse to take you to the mosque if the wealth you were spending on the horse was from a dubious source. I spoke with him about that one day as I was visiting him and he told me that the divine rewards that he would find in attending the sacred mosque could not outweigh the sins and misdeeds he would accrue as a result of going to the mosque and meeting people. Actually, Imam Malik, if you remember, does the same thing. He's in Medina for years, and even though he's next to the haram, he sees certain things that disturb his heart, and so he finds it better for him to pray at home um, with his family and with his students. Um, people nowadays find this an oddity, but this was the state he was in. He would find more intimacy and more closeness with God with his prayers at home than um, in the city's mosques. So one of his students later describes this period as follows. Nobody was able to meet him. May Allah be pleased with him. A tray of food used to be prepared for him, but he rarely ate anything. And when he did, he only ate very little. I was told by someone I trust that every night his family used to bring into his room a tray of food and drink, put it in front of him and leave without any verbal exchange or eye contact, 
shutting the door behind them. And when they returned after an hour to take back the tray, they would find it unchanged, nothing having been consumed. In his seclusion, he also rarely slept, and he did not leave except for the call of nature and for ablution, and without being noticed if possible. In that time, he stopped cutting his hair and beard. So he was reading the books of earlier generations whom he felt he could relate to in this time of disturbance and spiritual decline. And he said, they, the, the dead are like the living, whereas the living are like the dead. And he writes this in the same book. In this our age, I have witnessed a people from all the peoples, the Arabs, the Persians, the Indians, the Turks, and others also, who attained by reading books of haqqa'iq, spiritual realities, the degrees of the great sages, and who gained from those volumes the object of all of their aspirations. If, after reading, one supports one's knowledge with nafila practices and mujahada, spiritual sacrifice and effort, one becomes one of the people of perfection. Uh, this is, again, something of contemporary relevance, because people often ask, well, where is the, uh, the man of God, preferably only a few stops away on the underground, who I can visit with the white turban and the twinkling eyes and the flowing beard, who will see into my soul and take me up to the divine. That's a legitimate aspiration. And then people find, well, uh, if they're there, they're not unveiling themselves. Um, is this whole spiritual dimension of Islam, which depends so much on personal <coughs> effusion, no longer part of the religion, and we are just people of rules and doctrines? Is that all that Islam has become? Propositional rather than existential. Abu Ghani is giving us a kind of way forward by saying, uh, well, the Barzakh is a reality. You can be connected to those people through humbly reading their books. But the upshot of it all has to be that you intensify your outward practices and you overcome the ego rather than falling into some kind of uh, personalized, bespoke religion. You read Rumi and then you end up doing God knows what. No, it's about intensification of outward normativity and that's the sign of its validity. So uh, this is something that can be done at any time by anybody by respectfully picking up uh, the books of the ancient, ancient ones uh, and helps us to overcome that excuse within us that says, well, I can't do all of this exotic spiritual stuff because uh, I, I need a teacher. Deme ashk ichre kim eder ershad tariq sen heman yolonagir Allah valiyut tawfiq. Famous Turkish couplet. Do not say, lying around, who is going to guide me to the path? Stand up at this moment because Allah is the valiyut tawfiq. He is the guarantor of success. Uh, don't think that he can't open the most amazing inward doors for you and make your life easy and beautiful just because Sheikh X is not conveniently on the horizon. Sheikh X is just a suburb, but ultimately spiritual growth is a divine gift and he can offer you that gift uh, whenever he chooses. He's not subject to the rules of any institutionalized spirituality. So this is important. Let us not fall into lassitude and apathy and cynicism because the man with the flowing white beard is not taking our hand uh, in a convenient way. But remember that the divine nature is always close. He is qareeb, 
is Waliyu Tawfiq, and he can open doors to us, as he did for Sheikh Abdul Ghani with his eccentric relationship to official Tasawwuf, in a way of his choosing. God always acts on his terms, not on ours. So, in this period, when he's kind of letting his hair grow and not going out much, he's actually very productive. Uh, some of his greatest books emerge in this period. Remember, this is somebody who writes over 300 books and counting. Ten years ago, um, we used to think it was 280, but new books are coming to light all the time. Uh, quite an extraordinary output, and some of them, as we saw with this poetic commentary, are uh, very dense. So, he writes a major commentary on Ibn Arabi's Fusus al-Hikam, and that's one of the toughest books in Islamic metaphysics, and he's writing a commentary specifically focusing on some of the difficult, most controversial aspects within it. <coughs> and this is something many scholars have done this before. And in Damascus, Abdul Qadir al-Zairi was to write his kind of commentary on Fusus al-Hikam, Kitab al-Mawaqif, which has been translated, I think, um, recently. Really difficult. He also writes a book that becomes much more widespread and is still quite widely read, which is a commentary on a book by somebody called Muhammad bin Pir Ali al-Birgavi, who's an Ottoman scholar and preacher in Istanbul, called At-Tariqa al-Muhammadiyya, the Muhammadan way. Uh, and this uh, At-Tariqa al-Muhammadiyya is a major work. Uh, it's in Arabic. Uh, and is endlessly reprinted, and you can pick up cheap editions, and it's a very worthwhile, uh, sincere, Ghazalian, practical, non-theoretical kind of set of advices. There's an English translation of it now, uh, and it's about following the middle way in all things, not because that's a compromise, but because that is the most rigorous and authentic way of following the prophet. The zealot, or the bigot, or the libertine, thinks that he, through the intensity of his indulgence or austerity, is being authentic and is finding some real existential experience of the world. No, the real effort is to find the middle way. Extremes of any kind are an indulgence. The middle way requires a lot of self-discipline and pairing away of the turbulences of the ego. So it's definitely a book worth reading. It's early 16th century, I guess. Um, one of the things that he talks about is the need to give people easier fatwas. He says, whatever you do, whatever you do, give pe do not give people the more difficult of the possible fatwas, the more precautionary. Why? Because the people of this age are weak. And if you give them difficult fatwas, they will collapse under the weight and start to dislike the sharia. Give them the easiest, as long as it's halal. And this, of course, is a prophetic counsel. The ego doesn't always like giving people easy options because we assume it's because of our laziness or some kind of liberal Islam. But for Birgivina, um, for Birgivi, it is taqwa to give the ordinary Muslims the easier interpretations. And it is usually the ego that wants the harder interpretation because it's a form of self-praise. It's a kind of Sufi understanding of fatwa policy and it represents the usual fiqh uh, position. But nowadays, we tend to assume that the narrower you are, 
the less compromises you make, the more the West will be angry, and therefore the better a Muslim you must, you must be. The kind of psychological um, way of doing fatwa. Whatever is most extreme shows how authentic I am. So every group of the extreme groups becomes more extreme than the one before. So Al-Qaeda was really bad, but they weren't extreme enough for Daesh. And then Daesh, and there's even worse things happening, and that's the nature of... Because the extreme is a downward process, because it's governed by the ego, so it's easier for it to slip more and more towards its own nature. Whereas the golden mean is kind of a summit, and it's a struggle to get there. Because the ego doesn't want balance, because you have to think and make sacrifices. In any case, Birgav is, is one of the, the best places to go to for this traditional um, wisdom. So he writes it in this period. Another book he writes in his uh, Seven Years of Seclusion is really another bestseller, uh, which is called Ta'atir al-Anam fi Ta'abir al-Manam. Perfuming humanity through the interpretation of dreams. It's obviously important for him because much of his inward life is to do with Barzakh experiences and visions in dreams. So he writes what is actually the most popular book ever in Islamic history on dream interpretation. Now the scholars who are experts in these things would say, well, you really need, this is a kind of manual for somebody who's an expert. Uh, it's like, um, you don't really necessarily want to give, uh, you have to know what the discipline is before you need the literature and the equipment that, that goes with it. So. You can look up things in it, and sometimes it'll help, but sometimes it won't. Um, so once when I was living in Mecca, this guy came to me and said, I had a dream of seven flying turtles. I, thought, <laughs> I know there's a lot of hashish at the moment. I looked it up in this book, and yeah, there's a dream of seven flying turtles, and it means this. And I said, well, according to Nablusi, it means this. He said, yes, yes, he said, alhamdulillah. I don't know. Uh, so... Kind of, there is wisdom there, but generally the ulama will say, yeah, go to somebody who understands this strange Barzakh science of the spirit, because it's like looking in a, through the, 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 the looking glass. And the world of dreams, the world of lauch mahfuz, is something that can't really be captured on the two-dimensional pages of a book. But he writes this, um, uh, and uh, it's still all over the place. So he bases it not just on hadiths and athar, uh, dream experiences of the early Muslims, and Ibn Sirin in particular, time of the Salaf, the great dream interpreter. Of course, it comes ultimately from Yusuf, alayhi salam, the, the, the validity of it, um, but often from his own experience um, of dreams. So he has uh, dreams of Ibn Arabi. He sees himself as a baby suckling from Ibn Arabi, who is like a mother. Uh, but then, after these seven years, really austere times of prayer, not seeing anybody writing these masterpieces, <coughs> suddenly something happens and he bursts out into public life again, and not just into Damascus, but he then becomes uh, early modernity's uh, most respected writer of travel literature. He leaves Damascus. He's had his early journey up to Edirne and those places near Bulgaria, but doesn't write about that much. But he produces these uh, narratives of how he went out with some friends, didn't travel alone, 
in order to see God's earth. Um, so between 1689 and 1700, he is basically traveling. And he travels as a Sufi. This is a Sufi tradition of Siyaha, and it's Quranically mandated. So his biographer again says, when he left Damascus, he did so almost without anything. Together with his students and his close friends, only about seven people, he energetically traveled from country to country without money or any of the other necessities a traveler needs, except only a coffee jug and the horses they were riding. The Sheikh roved with them all over Syria to visit the places of the prophets and saints that were there and kept journeying with them until they reached Al-Arish in Egypt, from which he traveled by land to Cairo. And even though you get the impression of somebody who is a bit kind of quiet and maybe a bit stuffy, but actually in these travelogues you see him as being really kind of fun-loving and inquisitive. He wants to see what's up this mountain and who lives in that village and let's meet so-and-so. Uh, there's basically spiritual and human travelogues. It's not like, say, the earlier generation of Arab travel writers, Ibn Jubair and Ibn Battuta, where it's more kind of descriptive of we went here and went there and this is the ruler of this place. He's interested in meeting people. Um, uh, so he goes to Balabak, which is in <coughs> Lebanon, of course, and he produces a book, Hullat al-Dhahab al-Ibriz fi rihlat Balabak wal al-Aziz. He goes to a lot of mazars and holy places, uh, and he spends a lot of time reflecting on nature. So the Sufi Siyaha principle of going out defenseless, as it were, to inhabit virgin nature is about the Quranic practice of tafakkur and imbibing the presence of God through the vision of beauty in nature, but also other people. So he gives some very beautiful descriptions of the landscape of the Lebanese mountains and the cedars and the desert. Uh, but he also talks a lot about the extraordinary people that he meets, because as we said at the beginning, back then the human spectrum was much wider. You meet a much wider range of people, some of them eccentric, um, some of them profound. He doesn't say much about Sufi lodges and ceremonies, unlike, say, Evliya Chalabi, more or less in the same period, the great Ottoman traveller, who's visiting Sufi lodge after Sufi lodge and says, well, this sheikh wears a turban with a little thing in it, and he's not really so interested in that. He's interested in people rather than the labels, I guess. Um, and he's always trying to see what he can learn about God and his intentions in every human encounter. So like Ibn Arabi, he interprets the famous hadith, Adin Mu'amala, religion is engagement. Not as meaning just that religion teaches you how ethically to engage with other people but rather that religion comes from that engagement. In other words, if you're an island entire of yourself, not engaging with the orders of nature and the orders of other human beings, your religion is going to be a rather puny thing, which seems strange considering the seven years that he's just been through, but now he's in the state of bast after qabd, and he's in every person that he meets, even Druze and Christians and Jews, um, he's meeting all kinds of people and very, respectful. Um, some of his correspondence is with a, a, a Christian patriarch in, in Syria, and the letters have been preserved, and they're kind of fraternal, respectful messages. He's interested in what he can learn about the divine intention in creating the uniqueness of every individual soul. And this has to do with the Sufi idea of the shahid. Every human being is a recollection of that moment when the angels were commanded to bow down to Adam, 
And even though our clay rots and our souls rot and we are not what the angels bow down to, there is still within each one of us that divine spark that is uniquely interesting and he wants to see what he can find. So this Sufi principle of adab is a way of drawing out from other people what God intends by the creation of that person in every case. So it's a kind of human uh, travelogue rather than a geographical one. Um, so he describes a lot of the awliya and ulama. He meets an upper mountain in the Lebanon. He meets a khalwati sheikh who has already mystically been informed that he's coming. So a meal, a, a gathering is already ready, even though they hadn't announced themselves and couldn't send a, a text in advance to say they would be there. Um, but, and after the banquet, he tells him about a local sheikh, a mystic, who people used to go to for prayers and so forth, who lived on a mountain, who was able to jump, he says, in his travelogue from mountain to mountain. He was famous for miracles. But he neglected his prayers. So eventually the shaitan uh, took over him and he ended his days as a sinner and, his rep uh, and as a reprobate. He goes to Jerusalem as well and has a very interesting poem and relationship with the Qubba to Sahra, the, the site of the Isra that becomes important to him. Uh, academic discussions as well. And then in 1693, his longest trip, 388 days, which he writes about again in a book called Al-Haqiqa wal-Majaz fi rihlati bilad al-Shami wa Masr wal-Hijaz. He calls it, interestingly, truth and metaphor in traveling to the lands of Syria and Egypt and the Hijaz. So uh, he's traveling and engaging with his companions and meeting all of these people, but he says, I actually traveled alone. The only one I encountered the only one I was with was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, seeing the divine in nature, seeing the divine in other people, in this exalted maqam. And he does his hajj while he's on this journey. So he is then back in Damascus and returns to his father's professorial chair at the, uh, um, the Umayyad Mosque, which is the, the place of the Nablusis, is opposite the, the Mazar of um, Hazrati uh, Yahya, and in the morning he lectures on exoteric disciplines, including literature, and in the evening he talks about spiritual things and Barton. He also starts teaching in Ibn Arabi's uh, Mazar, which uh, the Ottomans have renovated and turned into rather a splendid place, Sultan Selim, Selim the Grim, uh, one of the most uncompromising and unindulgent of Ottoman sultans has come through Damascus on his way to conquer uh, Egypt and uh, the Hijaz. And of course, Ibn Arabi's tomb is there and he gets a fatwa from the Sheikh al-Islam, chief mufti of the Ottoman Empire, asking him about Ibn Arabi. And he says, this is one of the great men of Allah and you should renovate and restore uh, the tomb. So when you go there today, it's more or less in the form that Sultan Yavuz Selim renovated. And if you go to uh, Selim's tomb, which is on one of the seven hills of Istanbul, you can see things about Ibn Arabi and the connection that existed between the Sultan and the saint. Uh, so 
Abdul Ghani is teaching there and kind of surprising people because the tradition of the ulama is not really to talk much about metaphysical, speculative, difficult Sufism and particularly doctrines about the relationship between the creator and the created worlds. For the masses, there is the creator, there, is, there are the creatures, the divine names are the effulgence <coughs> of the divine creative purpose and everything exists in a fixed reality of time and space. Ibn Arabi is looking beyond that in complex ways. And the ulama generally disapprove of exposing the, say, falafel vendor on the street corner to this idea of everything being just the interplay of the divine qualities, a fully sacred view of nature. <coughs> but he believes that he has authorization and he teaches it. And this becomes a little bit problematic for some of the ulama of Damascus that he is divulging these haqqaiq um, to the masses. So one of his disciples, Al-Baytamani, says, a man once told me, Sheikh Abdul Ghani should not have disclosed those holy forms of knowledge to the vulgar mass, ought not to have opened the doors for the public to hear his words, for he is the imam of the age, and the masses would follow him in matters they cannot understand. Because of his teaching, they might stumble into forbidden things. Uh, so again, unconventional, but uh, the way he teaches, and this is expounded also in his various writings on Ibn Arabi and his commentaries on Ibn al-Farid as well, who in many ways shares Ibn Arabi's ontology, uh, is to uh, defuse some of the easily misunderstood aspects of Ibn Arabi's conception of being. It's intricate. We don't have time to go into it now. Um, but what is really important, I would say, in the fusion of the austere and non-ritual Naqshbandi tradition of presence in every moment with Ibn Arabi's ontology is that uh, after his khalwa, after his seclusion, Abdul Ghani comes out as an extremely expansive and joyful person. And his journeys are really kind of, they're about the happiest travel writing you'll ever find. Um, unlike you know, a lot of modern travel writers who just look for things that are wrong with those cultures or complain about the croissants at the hotel in Beirut or whatever, and it's all very self-serving, but it's just a joyful uh, thing. And this is because of his understanding that the world, from a certain perspective, is nothing other than the interplay of the divine names. And therefore, whereas on the surface of the world there's the incrustation of things that are fallible perceptions, take to be things we really don't like or approve of. The reality is that the divine command always prevails. Uh, everything is subject to the same kun fayakun, and nothing escapes the divine command and does things according to some way that the divine did not decree. So when you look below the surface of things and to the reality of things, you see the rahma of God, you see the power of God, you see the presence of God. It's a doctrine of immanence as well as a doctrine of transcendence. Yes, nothing resembles him. And Abdul Ghani will be the first to say, Amin, of course. But Allah has also said that he is Qarib, near. And this Qurub is expressed in everything and the interest of human beings, and the interests of the natural world, in your experience of the mule that you're riding, in the cedars of Lebanon, whatever, there is the divine interaction of qualities there to be feasted upon, the world as banquet. So 
from this Akbarian perspective, there's something very life-affirming, which is why some of these modern scholars think this is the birth of modern Arab humanism. Um, it's problematic, but it's a kind of humanistic vision, but it's much higher than any secular interpretation of human beings could be, because from a secular perspective, we exist randomly and we end randomly, and there's nothing intrinsically noble. But if you're following the Quranic, Karanna Bani Adam, we have ennobled the descendants of Adam, uh, you get into this idea of human beings as Khalifa and really worthy of respect, really possessed of intrinsic rights, rights that are not conjured up by some jurisprudential wishful thinking and invested in the dull meaninglessness of secular matter, but something that is there because God himself has ennobled the descendants of Adam. And in the Hanafi Maturidi tradition in particular, they talk a lot about innate rights. Ismat um, al By the mere fact that you're a descendant of Adam, you have certain inviolabilities. And these are the five values of the Sharia, the right to life, the right to property, etc. So in this Hanafi tradition, and remember he switches from the Shafi'i to the Hanafi madhab, you find this, it's not really a proto-humanism, but it's a, it's a Quranic humanism uh, that is about the nobility of the creature to whom alone the angels can be legitimately asked to prostrate. So Ibn Arabi, looking at this, sees the world as divine names. And when you see the world as divine names, you receive ahwal, spiritual states that lead to ishq, to love and ecstasy. And this ishq, this perception of the beauty of the divine agency is purifying. This is the idea of ecstatic love of God, purifying the self and taking us away from the contemplation of our own dark impulses and weaknesses. Uh, and this is one reason for the cultivation of the prophetic memory as, as an expression of beauty, uh, which is why you know, the Holy Prophet is the center of Muslim poetry and all of these badi ayat focus on not I don't know, Harun al-Rashid, but on the Holy Prophet والسلام, because he is already the, the human uh, mirror of, of heavenly perfection. So by drawing out and by making visible to half-blind human beings the beauty of things, and most eminently the beauty of the Holy Prophet, in whom all of the divine names are reflected in a perfectly symmetrical and appropriate way, human beings are drawn to God because they realize that they've never been away from God. So it's really kind of an ecstatic and an aesthetic beauty-focused uh, spirituality. So. Let's, before we close, because we've gone on a bit, um, looking at one quote from Abdul Ghani. Uh, know that all things are matters of great subtlety in that they are of the rank of illusion or of the mirage that is seen from afar and which is in fact nothing, including all solid things such as rocks, stones, inanimate objects and trees. They only appear solid through the prevailing of their innate nature. The vision of them exists through the discernment of the intellect, and sensory perception is predicated on the discernment of the intellect. As for their real nature, this is of the rank of subtle meanings, lata'if, perceived by the intellect of the discerning person in terms of their foundation on and firmness in al-wujud al-haq, 
uh, the absolute true being. Uh, and a lot of his poetry is kind of focusing on nature and the transcendent, translucent beauty of nature uh, as a way of human access to uh, the proximity of the name. So this is one of his poems. A face multiplies in many mirrors, and every viewer is baffled by it. It's a lot easier in English than in Arabic, by the way. All existence, by his command, are waves on the surface of water. Truly all the worlds are in their appearance and disappearance, in speed and alteration, like writing in the air. Sun and all creation in its lights, like floating dust motes. So the beauty of the world is a subtle thing, latif, that indicates its uh, reality, which is uh, a mirage, waves on a sea, flux, in comparison with the absoluteness and the inclusiveness of the divine being. Outside the infinity of God, by definition, there isn't room for anything. So these are just modalities of being, the endless flux and reflux of the operation of the divine Nature. So nature is celebrating God, and this is Quranic. Ibn Arabi is getting all of these things from some often neglected Quranic passages. All of those celebrations of nature. Everything in nature praises God. Everything in the world knows its way of praising, praising God. So hear and understand, or you're missing something pretty beautiful. Uh, Saadi says, Bejihani khurram az anon. I am happy and joyful in the world because the world is happy and joyful in him. This is a particular maqam of bust that you just see the beauty and the majesty and the perfection of the divine agency. So how can you not be joyful? So uh, in many ways his life ref- then reflects this practice of just inclusion and happiness. So uh, he uh, builds himself quite a, uh, a nice house in Salihiyah, and it's still there. You can visit it, and they point out the room where he used to stay. Um, but when he left the old town of Damascus, he made himself a kind of hut out of clay. He lived there for a bit, just as happy. And then with his uh, considerable family wealth, he built this nice house on the hill where he lived uh, uh, comfortably. You know, he like, used to like giving banquets. He had a kind of mobile pulpit made on wheels that had to be taken apart and carried on the backs of ten mules. And he would go to different parts of Damascus, particularly the countryside or by the river, um, public parks, and preach and talk about poetry in that public context so he could be preaching in nature rather than just in the mosques. And known for uh, his joyful demeanour. Um, and some of his poetry reflects this, including some poetry which to the rather pinched modern anxiety focus of modern Islam seems a bit scandalous, and some of his fatwas as well. So there's a big argument in the Ottoman Empire about tobacco and about coffee. These are two new things. Uh, And uh, the sultans for a while have prohibited both and there's a puritanical movement led by somebody called Qadi Zadeh, uh, who was a disciple of Birgavi, but become, became really quite narrow and extreme, which said these things are not sanctioned in Revelation. They must be haram. 
And uh, Nablusi wrote two fatwas as mufti of Damascus. He finds time for that as well. In which he says there's no basis for prohibition and the Hanafi tradition assumes that everything is lawful unless definitely proven otherwise. What's wrong with coffee? It doesn't intoxicate, doesn't cause violence like alcohol, so there's no qiyas there. It's fine. And that really becomes the decisive fatwa subsequently in the uh, Ottoman Empire. You know, where would the Turks be without Turkish coffee? Um, and then smoking. Like all good things, it comes from North America and it becomes popular in the Muslim world where it becomes really kind of a, a, a cultivated thing, the shisha and the like. Uh, and uh, some of the ulama are banning tobacco and he issues a fatwa saying it's permissible. Now back then we simply weren't aware of the health implications. Uh, so nowadays the fatwa of course has legitimately changed. Sheikh Shaltut, I think it was, at Azhar in the 1950s issued the fatwa that said it was uh, almost haram, but on the basis of modern medical knowledge. But Abdul Ghani Nablusi doesn't really have a problem with it because there's, there's no dalil that indicates that uh, God is against it. So avoid the Qadizadali's insistence that piety consists in making things prohibited wherever you can. This is part of a sickness which he deplored. Um, and his battle with the Qadizadalis was a, a well-known one. And they were very active. You know, they were smashing up taverns and uh, demolishing Sufi lodges. And they were like kind of proto-Wahhabis in some way. Lower, lower caste preachers usually, Va'ezan, not the senior muftis and the ulama who regarded them as a, kind of a vulgar embarrassment. But this is part of his um, battle. So he's in this state of bust and he spends uh, time composing poetry and sometimes in kind of picnics with the ulama of Damascus, uh, uh, which are, it seems, exclusively male only because uh, he follows the usual austere Syrian practice. You know, something like this gathering would have been quite uh, shocking to him. Um, he was not lax, um, but simply didn't like unnecessary prohibitions. So he went on a lot of these picnics and uh, invited people to his house, and that's where a lot of his poetry originates. There's three big collections of poetry, all of which are in print, none of which are in English. One is kind of literary, one is mystical, and the third one is kind of hedonistic. It's Khamrat Babil, the wine of Babylon, which seems like an odd kind of thing to come from the pen of the Mufti of Damascus, because it's kind of about the beauties of nature and the beauty of women, and it's often he combines the two and compares a particular Syrian mountain to a beloved's shoulder or something like that, and it's kind of, it's not where Olamat tend to go nowadays. But in that world, um, that was also part of the, what the Sufis would call Shahid Bazi, gazing upon the beauties of the human form uh, in order to learn about the creative uh, magnificence of the compassionate God, a practice that Sufis were often reprehended for. Now, he's not actually got girls around in these gatherings, um, but this, this literary tradition means that he's one of the sort of major amatory and erotic poets of the Arabic language, uh, which is another aspect of his, uh, of his um, identity. And he writes a book about love. The utmost desire in 
Loving the Beloved, something like that, in which he talks about uh, romantic love as being a divine gift that is a prophetic state that helps us to transcend more earthly passions, focuses us on contemplating uh, the, the, the imago dei, the, 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 uh, uh, the presence of the sacred in another human being, uh, the sacrality of, of, of marriage. It's an interesting book, about half of it is hadiths. Uh, it's the kind of literature that can't really exist over the border in Christianity. There's plenty of rabbinical equivalents to this, but um, Christianity with its uh, uh, emphasis on saintly celibacy has never been able to go into that space. Of course, the Catholic Church is now falling apart as a result of trying to defy something that Abdul Ghani would regard as, a, as an incredible sign of the divine compassion and wisdom. So, yeah, an aesthete as well. For him, beauty is really, really important because it is, as Plato said, the splendor of the truth. So somebody who embraces the world in a fully sharia-compliant and actually very devotional sort of tahajjud-oriented lifestyle, who loves the beauty of nature, who is interested in meeting a wide variety of human beings and seeing what God intends by their creation, um, the love of marriage, of uh, women, it's part of the kind of classical late classical flowering of Arab Islam. <coughs> I've given just a kind of drop from the ocean, uh, but it's, I think, enough to give a sense of how different things were back then, uh, when uh, the great ulama considered Islam to be a kind of uh, joyful style of life, rather than what we often hear from the preachers nowadays, which is that God has created the world to catch us out. You know, the world is a minefield and you have to be really anxious. Oh, that's haram, that's haram. Uh, this uh, penitential style of preaching that is yelled at us from the minbars nowadays, particularly in some parts of the Islamic world where they think the only way of making people good is to tell them how bad it is to be bad and everybody leaves the mosque after Jummah feeling, oh, I had to do it. It's like going to the dentist. You have to hear the khutbah, but it's, it was painful. It was a painful one. Um, this is not his world. This is the Islam of the age of the empirical experience of God and his compassion and his justice in the world, and uh, an experience of religion and the world and God's creation as something infinitely lovable. Uh, so he was somebody who focused, as Ibn Arabi did, as the Qur'an does, and the Holy Prophet, who is rahmatul lil alameen, mercy to the world, on mercy and forgiveness and love as being the preeminent qualities of the believer, rather than a penitential anxiety and a policing of boundaries, which is what it seems to have been reduced to for most of our contemporaries. So yes, another leader, even though he didn't really want to lead anybody, and tended to prefer his own company. But uh, when he got out and about, he was somebody, the quality of whose soul expressed itself in not an extroversion, but simply in a, a sheer joy of being alive in God's world. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala replace our darkness with light, replace our disunity with unity, replace our illusions with truth, replace our focusing on the faults of others with the delight in seeing what is best about others, 
and make us people of sincerity and true saluk, attached to the great ones of Islam, with reverence for their memory, living and dead, inshallah, that he may unite us, inshallah, in both worlds, in the religion of Rahmah, and following the way of he who was Habibullah, God's beloved. Barakallahu feekum, wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.